going to read from 2 Corinthians 12, and this is Paul talking about his thorn. And, and specifically what this thorn is talking about is an ailment in his flesh, something that actually hurts him. Um, and it's, it's not really the same thing as, as an idol, but the, the application of it is. So, uh, so let's read these, these verses. Uh, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And I want you to know, when we talk about idols and when Ben is going to talk about idols, that, that phrase will should dominate your mind. A messenger of Satan sent to harass. Keep us from our intended purpose to keep me from being too elated. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he, that he should leave, that it should leave me alone. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Uh, this, this idea, this concept of, of, of an idol or this thorn making us weak and making us aware of our weaknesses, um, a lot of times if we, we all, let's, we talked about it last week and, and now this week, we all have idols. Some of them we're fully aware of. Some of them we're not aware of. Most of them we think we have the ability or power to rid ourselves of, to uproot, to disconnect our hearts from. All of us, when we think that, are lying to ourselves. Uh, This is the, the definition we've been working with about what an idol is. Anything that is more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you, what only God can give you. Okay, so a lot of times when we start talking about this stuff, we think about, in my mind, I think about uh, real easily my kids can become an idol for me or this, this church can become an idol for me and its success is more important to me than my connection with God or, or my wife or, or family or, or friendships or all those things can become idols. But there are deeper things than that that are at the, the very core of us. And uh, here's, here's the thing that, that I really want to say, and I think Ben is going to do a, a great job of telling his life story to get us to this point, um, that we have a, a strong, we have a, a strength in us that, that we can rely upon, but God has, has even worked idols, the, the idols that are in our lives, he has worked them out to his good because he uses those idols, just like Second Corinthians is talking about in the, the thorn, the, the, the struggle, the calamity, the suffering. God uses idols in our lives to convince us of our desperate need for him. I have idols in my life that, that you and I can coexist with. In other words, they're culturally acceptable. Like You don't look down upon me because of the idols that I have. I love my family desperately. My family can be an idol for me. That's okay. We can coexist together and peacefully work together. Ben's going to come up and talk about stuff that's in his life that isn't so culturally acceptable. And here's what I want to say to you as we sit and listen to Ben tell his story. That while your idol might be culturally acceptable, it is never, ever, ever spiritually. God does not accept your idols. No matter if, if I can be your best friend in the whole world and, and your idol doesn't rub up against me and, and hurt me, it's destructive to God and your relationship with him. And so when Ben tells his story, you can see it so plainly of how he is, his idols have been destructive to people in and around his life. This is how we are to God when we allow these idols to stay in our lives. And Ben's going to tell a story too, how we can't, he couldn't disconnect or uproot his idol on his own. He had to have God 
do that for him. And I want you to know this. You are the same way. You can't, you have no power to disconnect your own idol from your own heart. So, uh, I'm going to give up the, the mic to, to Ben Summers. And I want you guys to know that Ben's dad, Bruce, and I were in an accountability prayer partnership 15, 20 years ago. And uh, from day one in that, we were praying for this dude. Um, and uh, Ben coming to North Church to give this testimony is... Uh, don't look at me because I'll probably be crying a lot as he's talking. It is the culmination of years and years and hours and hours and hours of prayer. And uh, I'm, uh, it's a miraculous thing that God has done in the heart of this man. And uh, he's going to come up and, and talk to you guys. So come on up, Ben, and share your story with us. We good? All right. Uh, it's amazing. I need this because I don't know what to do with my hands. It's amazing that uh, no matter how much I prayed about what to say, I still walked in this morning unsure about what I was going to say is what should have been said. And I, I appreciate what you said, Rick, because uh, if it's done anything else, it has just confirmed in my heart what God has let me to share with you this morning. And uh, it's a wonderful thing for me to be here uh, for the reason that Rick told you, uh, for the many people who prayed for me, for the glory of Jesus Christ, uh, and for the sake that uh, me being here, if you know me and all the things that I have done, especially to the body of Christ, and you understand that just me standing here is an exercise and demonstration of forgiveness. And, uh, and I appreciate that so much. And uh, so I wanted to start by reading a scripture that uh, I had come across on my uh, stint at Teen Challenge, which I will talk to you about. But, uh, and I have so identified with this passage of scripture, and I'm not going to reference it. But, uh, you know, in what I say, but I just, I figure this would be a good introduction. It's Lamentations 3. It says, I am a man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with laughter. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and, stated me, and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone. And all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. 
Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it upon him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There, yet, there may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners in the land. To deny a man his rights before the Most High. To deprive a man of justice. Would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should any man complain when punished for his sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. I have to pray. Holy Father, thank you for your gospel in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the ability to be up here and for North Church and what it has established in my life and the people who have established a loving community in my community. Lord, Lord, you know that it is not in words from me, from my mouth, Lord, that your gospel is communicated to us, Lord. It is not from anything that I can do or anything that I can say, Lord. So I pray that you would communicate your gospel through the story that I have to share. Lord, Lord, I pray that your son Jesus would be glorified in these moments. And it is his name we gather and we, we pray. Amen. I was, uh, I was saved when I was very young. And uh, if you ask him, my father will tell you that it's still yet the most unassisted salvation he has ever been a part of. He likes to tell me that. Because uh, when I was six years old, I walked up to him, seemingly out of nowhere. I walked up to him one evening, and I said to him, and if I know myself... If I knew myself back then, I said to him with great trepidation, said, Dad, I don't want to go to hell. And uh, while I don't really remember this instance with great clarity at all, I am sure that I can tell you that with joy in his heart, my father began to tell me how we all deserve the flames and hell, but God so loved the world. And, uh, and I tell you this part of the story because the entire rest of my story must be understood within the context of this moment. And uh, secondly, there are those who would challenge me saying that, uh, that because of the life I have lived, how can I still claim to be saved when I was this young? You know? And uh, while there's no real good answer for those who would ask those type of questions... I'd still like to respond to it because I think in it, in this story, is the gospel. And, uh, and the Bible teaches us that there is no more pure an expression of the gospel upon our lives in faith than that that you will find in the heart of a child. Who, this one in particular, uh, myself, barely understanding the sobering reality of hell or why he deserves to go there, but believing that he does, seek salvation in the arms of the only one who is offering it. It's Jesus Christ, a man who he can comprehend even less. But with every lack of knowledge in his head, faith in his heart, childlike faith, bridges the gap from his heart to God's hand. And there is much rejoicing in heaven. And... uh, and I hear people talk about salvation these days as if it had nothing to do with being saved from the wrath of the very God who saves us. Who, incidentally, is wrathful for the very same reason that he is loving and good. But we, but we, 
we talk about being saved in eloquent speeches, you know, I mean, myself included. Like, we try to conform the gospel to a more palatable message to the unbelieving world. And we talk about saved as if it had very little to do with not going to hell. And as if hell had very little to do with the holy character of God. And we talk about saved, being saved as if it had more to do with knowing God and, and serving Christ and loving others as we ourselves would desire to be loved. And being filled with joy and peace and things of that nature. And while I am sure that those things proceed from salvation, I want to assure you that it was not my great understanding of God's love for me that propelled me to the cross, whether at 6 or at 26. But it was great condemnation and fear. As John 1, 4 says that the light shines in the darkness. And in order for us to see that light, the light has to shine into the darkness that is our lives. And when it does, we begin to see ourselves for what we really are. Because we get just a glimpse of who God really is. And when that happens, we see the great consuming fire that threatens to engulf us. And at that moment, we run like hell into the arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's only at that moment, only at that moment, after we have been delivered from the flames, after we have understood all that we are being saved from, or begin to understand that, and of now being able to commune with the Spirit of God, as opposed to resist him. It is only at that point that we ever begin to understand what real love is. And that's when Jesus comes to us and he says, when you were my enemies, I died for you. That's how I understand salvation. That is the gospel of salvation. It is by that definition of salvation that I can tell you with full assurance that at six years old, when my trembling heart cried out to God, to Jesus, that God heard my cry, and like that, I was saved. Because of his goodness and faithfulness to his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, that's how I've begun my life. And, but the wickedness of the world did not hesitate to involve itself with me. And of the uh, one whom the Bible refers to as our adversary, Lucifer, and I want to tell you about what I believe to be his first full frontal attack on my life. And it was when I was nine years old, and it was two or three years later, I was nine or ten, and my family had gone to Poplar Bluff to visit family. And, uh, and one night, we were staying at my, my great aunt and uncle's house, and one night, my entire family was downstairs doing whatever it is adults do, I still don't know. Uh... And I was upstairs with another member of my family watching TV, and we were all alone. We're watching TV, and this person was flipping through the channels. And uh, he happened to cross an X-rated channel. And uh, on the screen appeared two women naked. I don't know how to describe an X-rated scene in PG terms. So, you know, they were two women naked having sex with each other. And... Uh, and I remember this night so well that uh, I remember that I began to be full of fear. And at that moment, in my childlike innocence, I turned my head away. And I wouldn't look at the screen. And uh, I had no idea what I had just seen. I couldn't understand it. But I knew instinctively that it was not something that anybody should ever see. And so I had my head turned, and I remember being two things at this very moment. I remember being, one, appalled by what I had just seen, but at the same time, I remember being powerfully drawn to it. And while I had my head turned, and I was busy trying to fight a temptation uh, to uh, indulge a desire I wasn't even aware that I had yet, this person next to me was laughing at me hysterically, uh, getting an enormous kick out of my embarrassment and my shame. And uh, he's sitting there just making fun of me, uh, taunting me, compelling me to look. It's like, look at this, look at this. Why don't you want to look at this? Don't you want to see what's going on here? Why don't you want to look at this? And so, uh, and so instead of turning and running out of the room like I should have done, you know, like every good story ends, uh, 
I turned my head to the screen and I looked for a moment and I turned back. And then I did it again and again and again until I could not take my eyes off the screen. And uh, that image is burnt forever into my consciousness. I can still think of it this day and still be filled with the same two things that were going on in my heart at that moment. I can say, I'm still repulsed by it and still completely obsessed with it. And it was in that moment that I was sitting on the couch that a new sensation was birthed in me. It was a sensation, it was a pleasure, it was an excitement, not necessarily having to do with the sin that I was participating itself, but it was the excitement that, was, that overwhelmed my senses of being a part of something that I knew to be wrong. And it overwhelmed me, and like that, my innocence was gone, taken from me. And uh, and I don't, I don't tell you that story to blame any decisions that I have made in my life or a life that I take full responsibility for because I'm sure that kind of thing happens all over the country all the time, all over the world, all the time and people get over it but uh, I'm not telling you why it happened only that it happened and that in the pool of temptation I was thrown into the deep end long before I knew how to swim because it was, in, it was at this time in my life that I began to obsess about sensuality and sensual things and anything that w- would derive that same, that would, that would birth that same pleasure, that same excitement in my body. And it started, I was 10 years old, dude. I, I think back at this and I just, I wonder. It's like, I was 10 years old and I was busy, like, uh, I would lay awake at night for hours just thinking uh, exciting thoughts, things that would excite me, things that would bring the same pleasure to my body. And uh, there were things that, ridiculous things, if I could even communicate. There weren't even things that had any sort of foundation in reality itself. I was a child. I had a wild imagination, but I had no informational context for the things that I was dreaming up. But I was associating them with the notion of being wrong, and so I was deriving the same kind of pleasure from it. And they weren't, always, they weren't always sexual things, though that was the first manifestation of them. But they graduated to things that society was condoning, cond- or condemning to my face, such as smoking cigarettes, doing drugs, drinking alcohol, stealing, even killing. Things I would, I would dream up just because they excited me. And it wasn't that out of a rebellious heart that I was pursuing these things, but it was because participation in rebellion at whatever level evoked the same sensation in me, the same feeling, the same excitement, and it was that excitement that I began to chase at all costs. And I was addicted to that feeling long before I abused any substance in my life. And I know I was addicted because that behavior produced so much guilt and shame in my life that I was dealing with every day. But no matter how intense the shame, no matter how heavy the guilt, it was never enough to deter me from seeking that feeling through that behavior covetously. And I want you to know what I know. I'm telling you this so that you may understand that addiction does not start when one begins to abuse substances. Addiction begins when your behavior begins to conform itself to a desire that cannot be overcome by any work of conscience. And shame had become the nature of my entire existence. And I think about these things, and I think about the addiction and the way it was, the way it had grown in my life, and I think that is exactly how our sin is. That is exactly how our sinful nature works. And, and I'm not saying that we are all addicted to something in our lives because I don't believe that. And I'm not saying that we are even addicted to our sins because sin is not a description of what we do. It is a diagnosis of who we are. What I am saying is that the process of addiction 
And the physical death, which is always the culmination of it, is an accurate metaphor for the nature of our spiritual condition apart from Christ. What you see going on in the life of an addict because of his addiction is exactly what sin does to your soul. Even apart, even in Christ, we are still marked with the stain of sin. And that is why the Bible tells us to fight it. Because it is always threatening to overcome us. And, uh, but you cannot fight what you cannot see. And so I hope that when you hear me talk about my addiction, and you hear me relate to how my addiction served to magnify every the stain of sin upon my motives and my actions and every thought I had underneath me, then I hope that you will be able to examine yourself. And then when we examine ourselves, then I hope that you will be able to see that there is nothing in our entire existence, any of us, that does not carry the weight of that same stain of conviction, which is self-gratification. I don't, I don't know why I went there, but anyway, uh, as my behavior continued and it began to escalate, I began to involve myself overtly in the sins that I was dreaming of. I began to fall into sexual impurity. I began to smoke cigarettes, uh, experiment with marijuana. Uh, and at that point, I began to fall into a very deep depression. And it's a depression that I suffer from still today. And uh, I became very disillusioned about the faith that I was seeking and the faith faith that I had. But I wasn't putting two and two together. I didn't understand that my dissatisfaction with my faith was directly proportionate to my deliberate disobedience to the Word of God in my life. And so about this time, I started asking questions. I was clever enough to start asking questions. And so I started justifying myself, saying, if God created me, did he create me to be this miserable? Like everybody else seems to be getting along so easy in life, seems to be going through life so effortlessly, seems to be pursuing God so effortlessly, and yet I seem to struggle through every moment of every day. Is God giving them something that he's not giving me? Second, if God loves me, why then do I feel so completely alone? Instead of uh, seeking help from those who God has put in my life to serve that purpose, I allow these questions to just resonate in my consciousness and fuel my justification. My justification fueled my sin, and my sin fueled my misery. And about this time... When I was 15 years old, my dissatisfaction with my faith culminated about the same time that I had my first experience with alcohol. And at my first drink, I felt like all my questions had been answered. And I began to feel, experience a freedom that was much more like, much more like the freedom I had anticipated freedom to be like. It was a freedom from suffering not a freedom to endure it. And, uh, and for this reason and many others, I'm sure I'm not even aware of, I believe that I was an alcoholic from my first drink. And uh, by the time I was 18, I was a good candidate for any rehabilitation facility. Blacking out, drunk, lying to everyone I knew, stealing from people, manipulating everybody I knew. At that point in my life, I'd become either the man you hated to love or the one that you loved to hate. Everybody served the purpose of fulfilling my cravings, and my cravings did not stop with alcohol. I, uh, I began to blaspheme the name of God to anybody who would listen to me. I began to spread my disease of justification. Uh worldly wisdom, deception to anybody who would listen to me, especially to those who were close to me, my friends. 
uh, and I began to actively seek out and destroy or seek to destroy the faith of others. And I had gone from being a rebellious son to a rogue agent. But I want you to know that I was just masking my own misery. For God, in His infinite mercy with me, had not yet allowed me to abandon my faith in my heart. And the conflict that was going on inside me was literally driving me mad. And the worse it got, the worse I got. And so this went on for nine, ten more years. Just getting worse and worse. And I can imagine, I don't, I don't even want to go in to all the things that I've done. But I started, I, I, I would survive just ridiculous catastrophes. I remember, walk, I remember calmly walking out of a flaming car wreckage and crossing a highway, drunk, flagging down a trucker to take me to the hospital. I remember falling off a balcony, waking up in the hospital, rolling downstairs. Just ridiculous things that I should be dead over and over and over and over. Getting hit by a car as I'm crossing the street. It's ridiculous stuff. Hearing my head bouncing off the concrete. So God's grace, even when we are in rebellion from Him. Until the day that uh, I woke up in jail for the last time, laying next to two men who were so obviously laying in their own urine. And uh, I began to ask the question to myself, what have I become? But again, in my arrogance, that was the wrong question. The question is not, what have I become? It is, what have I shown myself to be? Because we do not become worse sinners as we indulge sin in our lives. The sin that is already lurking inside, the sin that is already there, just becomes active and destructive. And so in a bed, and in a bunk in California, in a California jail that looks strangely out of something like a out of a, a Clint Eastwood set, movie set. It, it was freaky. I, uh, after a long conversation of, with God that I'm paraphrasing, I told him that if he wants my life, he can have it because I don't want it anymore. And while I was very sincere in that decision, God still had so much to teach me. And, uh, For I thought that uh, just because I had acquired a whole lot of knowledge about who God was and His Word, that I would be able to step out of jail and walk in that in spite of all the sinful entanglements that I had involved myself over the last 15 years. But the problem is, is that though I had made a decision to make, acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of my life, I still retain the spiritual maturity of that six-year-old who was running from hell. And, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this many times before in many different ways, but I want to tell you that having knowledge and having the wisdom that is company to that knowledge is two different things. And though I was full of the knowledge that had come from a lifetime of being near the church, I had allowed the world to be my teacher and was therefore full of its wisdom. And so when I stepped out of jail, essentially what I was trying to do is I was trying to apply the knowledge of God by means of worldly wisdom. And when I did that, it's like a nosedive to the concrete. Uh, within two weeks, I had been drunk again. Within four months, I was in an inappropriate relationship with a woman. And soon after that, I was homeless. <laughs> because there's a difference between the difference between paying lip service to the truth in your life and allowing the nature of the truth to propel you forward and motivate your actions. And uh, what I was doing is I was saying that I needed Jesus Christ to save me. But what I was really doing is I was placing the brunt of that burden upon my family and allowing them to help me solve my problems. 
I was saying that I needed Jesus Christ's love in my life. What I was doing, I was relying on the attention and the affection of women in my life to serve that need. What I was saying is that I needed Jesus Christ to set me free, but what I was, what I was really wanting was freedom from alcohol, not slavery to righteousness. But I thank God that he does not allow Jesus Christ to be our antidote in our lives. Jesus is not a supplement for us. He is not a vitamin that we take. He is the blood. And it is only in him that all things consist. He is before all things. He is in all things. And he will be the culmination of all things. He is the light of the world. And if you do not hold fast to him, you will be cast into the outer darkness. He is the one that we need the most. Not our husbands, not our wives, not our sons or our daughters, our friends, our girlfriends, our boyfriends, our pulpits, our guitars. He is the one that we need the most because he is Lord. And when you acknowledge him as Lord in your life, you become a son of God. And as our father, God has the responsibility of teaching us the one thing that is going to save us. And that is that Jesus is the one that we need the most. And so in his infinite wisdom and because of his great love for me, in the process of teaching me that lesson, he allowed me to completely lose everything in my sin. Uh, I had no friends. My family wouldn't do anything for me anymore. I had no job, no car, no money, no home. And in that moment, I was a six-year-old cowering before the mighty hand of God. And I knew in that moment, better than any words could ever express, that I have nothing in this world but Jesus. Nothing that will not perish. Nothing that will not wither and die even quicker as I continue to hold on to it. And I had to make a choice. I knew that there was no future in the life that I was living. And I was making no pretense about it. Alcohol would kill me. But it was not a choice of whether or not I would go on living the way that I was was living. Or whether I could go on living the way I was living. It was a choice of whether I wanted to live or whether I wanted to die. And... By some supernatural, extraordinary miracle, there was still a glimmer of hope living inside me. But it wasn't the kind of hope that says, well, gee, there's hope for me yet. Or, man, I hope I'll do better next time. It's the kind of hope that comes at the abandonment of all hope. When you finally give up trust in yourself and in others, and in anything this life can give you, and you finally see the world for what it really is, and that there is Nothing in it that will not soon be destroyed. When you reach this kind of hopelessness, that is when you are able to better see and more clearly see the blessed hope, which is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And and when you are able to see yourself as the profound nothingness that you are apart from Him, then you are able to see everything else in your life from that point forward for what it really is, and that is a gift from God. And then gratefulness becomes the nature of your entire existence. And because of the gift that God had given me in Jesus Christ, it was only by Him that there was still a hope left in me that I was able to choose life at that moment. And so I did. But choosing life translated to going to Teen Challenge for me. And Teen Challenge, you guys probably, you may not know what it is, but it's a 14-month program of intensified discipleship, Bible study, and prayer. And it is for people who know specially 
because of circumstances or decisions that they have made, no, especially better than most, that if they are ever going to find their lives and they have to first lose them. I have been in Teen Challenge with men who had struggled with alcohol, like me. I've been in Teen Challenge with guys who struggle with drugs, with heroin, cocaine. I've been in with guys in Teen Challenge that struggle with homosexuality. I've been with guys who were mentally unstable and homeless. I've been with guys who literally had no other problem in their lives, but the fact that they had allowed their pride to rise up against them so, so strongly that it was literally eating them alive. And so I thank God that I was brought together with these men at Teen Challenge, and it felt great because I'd, I shouldn't even have gone. It cost, four, it cost over $400 to go to Teen Challenge. It was a miracle that I went in. I went in under a scholarship of people who paid for me for guys like me to go in, to, who have nothing. And it felt great. It felt great to go in because I felt like God had literally plucked me out of the killing fields and brought me into safety. And now I wasn't hurting any of the people who loved me anymore. And I felt like everybody was going to get a good night's sleep from now on, including me. And no matter how, no matter how good this felt, it wasn't long before I slipped into a depression that was deeper and darker than any I had yet since experienced. Because without the old medicine, all those bad feelings and all that self-hatred begin to start pouring up out of me like a river of sewage. And Satan, in my vulnerability, starts chirping in my ear. And he's like, he's like, Benjamin, don't you realize how worthless you are? Don't you remember how worthless you are? Like, don't you remember that you're all alone? You're not going to make this. Because everybody out there who says that they love you, everybody who says that they care about you, they don't know who you really are. They don't know how evil you have become. Because if they do, if they did, they wouldn't love you the way that they say that they do. Lies and darkness going on, turning around in my head. And every day I woke up under the oppression of this. Crawling to what seemed like a dry and fruitless place of devotion with God. Crying out for peace and victory. And going to bed each night what seemed like with more defeat than the night before. And it wasn't long before all of this horridness going on inside me, all of this darkness just led me back to the only thing that had ever given me release from the pain, and that is my sin, my sinfulness. And I began to relish it again in my heart. I began to desire it again in my life, desire it above the Lord Jesus Christ. And I began to cherish it, and to live in it. It was like I was 10 years old again, deriving pleasure from the mere thoughts of the sin that I, that I was capable of, or the sin that I had taken part in. And this went on for months, and every so couple of weeks, every three or four weeks, I would come to a place of, of shallow repentance, and I would muster up all of all of the prideful strength and my own will and, and do my best to try to walk the straight and narrow and try to glorify God in my life. But soon, it wasn't, it wasn't long before the sadness was too heavy, before the darkness was too thick, and I would begin to fall back into that old sinfulness. And it would be worse than before. And my misery deepened. Until I come to a point, at one point in my stint at Teen Challenge, I came to the point where I knew I couldn't do it anymore. I had come to a point where I was done with it. And I went to God and I cried out to him. I said, Father, I want to serve you with all my heart. But I cannot serve you and I cannot serve these desires at the same time. So if you want me, you got to take these things away from me. Because if you don't, I will die. I am powerless over them. I can do nothing about them. 
And I want to emphasize to you what he did for me in that moment. In that moment of humility, in that moment of of surrender, do you know what he did for me in that moment? Absolutely nothing that he had not already done for me since before the foundation of the world. And yet, I, I realize, I've begun to realize that these two lessons that I had learned so recently in my life, one, on one hand, that I have nothing in this world but Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, I can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Everything I do, whether good or bad, before a holy God is filthy rags. I have nothing but Jesus. I can do nothing apart from Jesus. And I've begun to realize that these two things were the key to everything. And I wish I could tell you that revelation comes with bolts of lightning and choirs of angels, but it doesn't. For me, it comes by slow, painful crawling, most of the time with my face in the mud. But I've learned how to fight spiritual battles in my life. And I've learned that spiritual battles are not fought by what we do as being right or wrong, but what we believe as reflecting the truth of the Word of God. And Paul says that I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that God will never leave me and he will never forsake me. And now that I have been set free from sin and have become a slave to God, then the benefit I reap leads to holiness because it is only God who can make you holy. And it is only God who can want you to be holy. And though I see my life as, like, I see my entire life as been crawling around in the muck And in the mire, the entire word of God is screaming out to me saying that Jesus was right there with you in the mud, propelling you forward, telling you there's a light at the end of the tunnel and to not give up. And no matter how much it seems like it's you reaching out for God, it's really God reaching down for you because it's his promise. It's his covenant, not yours. And so weeks, months later, after this time in my life, months go by, and so I'm standing at Teen Challenge all of a sudden, and, and I realize, just obscurely in my brain, I realize, gee, it certainly has been a long time since I've relished sin in my life, since I've delighted in it, since I've gone back there and, take re- and taken refuge in it. Man, it certainly has been a long time. And then three words into my brain at that moment. And I don't know if these were God's words or my thoughts. It is not up to me to make such determinations, but I will tell you this, that three words entered my head at that moment and said, you are free. And I said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And my stubbornness I tried to comfort myself by taking myself back there. I tried to force myself to go back there in my mind, to take refuge in my sin. I tried to force myself to go back there, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And and I want to tell you that I stand before you right now free of things that I never thought I would ever be free of even in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I never thought I would be free of these things. And I want you to hear what I am saying. I am not saying to you that it was out of my great and noble pressing forward or out of great perseverance that God rewarded me with a freedom that I would not otherwise have had in Him. That is not what I am saying. I am saying that every day I woke up under the oppression of my own sin and dangling above the abyss. I knew every day slightly more than the last that Jesus was the only means and and process 
for my salvation. And Jesus was crying out to me. He was saying, Ben, if you want to be free from all the things that are destroying you, then you got to get up on this cross with me, and then you got to cry out to the Father, Father, this is my body for you. Not in exchange for what, he's, for what he offers us, but in response to what he has already given us. And so I can thank God for my whole life, for all the suffering, for all the bad decisions, for all the pain, all the hurt, all the forgiveness. I can thank God for it all. Because from six years old until this very moment, I cannot look back on anything and not see every action, every word, every thought, every moment in my life that did not carry the weight of shaping this lesson in my heart. And I thank God for that. Could he have done it another way? Of course. My God to whom everything is possible could literally have done it every other way. But he decided to teach it to me this way. He decided to do it this way. And for that, I will literally be eternally grateful. And do I still suffer? Seems now more than ever. And the sin in my life pains me more than ever every day. And I still struggle. And it is important for me to communicate this to you. That I still, I still find myself every day relying upon myself to overcome the sin in my life. The treachery in my life. The adultery in my life. The immorality in my life. But I want... I want you to see me as a murderer and an adulterer and a thief and a liar. Because until you see me first as a murderer, as a treacherous man, as a liar, as an adulterer, until you see me as that first, you will not see the power of God in my life. But, when sin rises up against me and I see it in my life and I see it in my heart and I see it in every, in every single thought and motive that I have and I become depressed about it and I start thinking that I'm worthless and that I have no relationship with Jesus Christ, I can turn to Psalm 73 and say, though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom? Do I have in heaven but him? For this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 